Hey, Arbert, this is Ryan. And if you're listening to this uh, message right now, um, this is being recorded days after our Sunday service. For those of you who were with us, uh, you'll know that our power went out. And so we weren't able to capture this message. But for those that were serving and away from church, uh, we thought we would try to uh, record the message again. And so we are recording this on Wednesday, uh, November 2nd. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out. We are in Philippians 2. We're going to jump right in. We have a lot to cover today. We were originally slated to cover verses 12 through 30, but because our text is so, so rich, we're just going to be spending time in verse verses 12 through 18. And so again, if you have your Bibles, you can get those out right now and follow along as you're listening to this message in Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. But before we actually start reading, um, what we need to remember is that when we read these verses, that we are stepping into a flow of thought, that there is a context to what we are reading and we can't forget where we just came from. And so we can't forget what Paul just said in verse 11. And, and maybe you're listening right now and you're kind of wondering, well, what did Paul say in verse 11? And you're like, I can barely remember what I ate for dinner last night. I totally get that. I'm with you there. Just as a refresher, last week in verse 11, Paul said that um, Jesus Christ is Lord, or put in uh, another way, that Jesus the Messiah is Yahweh, that he is the creator of the universe in flesh and blood. Now, for a moment, I want us to put ourselves in the Philippians' shoes, and and we need to remember that the first time that the Philippians would have encountered this letter, um, it wouldn't have been broken down in various bite-sized chunks over a course of many weeks, if not months, but they would have have had this letter animatedly read over them, maybe by Epaphroditus, maybe by someone else, and when they would have gotten to this point in the letter, and they would have heard that hymn, that poem about Jesus Christ, and gotten to verse 11, uh, their mouth mouths would have been open and their heads would have been spinning and and they would have just stopped. And whoever was reading that letter, you can just imagine that they would have let it ring out and there would have been this this like silence. And, And this silence would have then been interrupted by verse 12, which is where we'll pick it up. And it reads this. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my own presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. Now, some of your translations might have that sentence start out with therefore, which is fine. But what's, what's interesting about this word is that it's not the typical word in the Greek for the word therefore. It's actually this word hosti, which means as a result or because this is the case. And so the flow of thought here in Paul's letter at this point is, is that if Jesus Christ is Lord, then he should be Lord. He should be ruler. He should be the rabbi, the king of your life. And then Paul goes on to explain, here's what this should look like in your life. And we're given a command here to follow through on right there at the end of verse 12. And Paul says this, he says, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. Some of your translations might say uh, fear and trembling. And I actually like that translation better, uh, fear and trembling, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Because first, Paul sets up this command by saying two things. He first of all starts off by saying, so then, my dear friends. And this is interesting because the majority of the time that Paul is writing and referring to the Philippian church, he refers to them as his brothers and sisters or his Adelphoi. But here he uses this other Greek word, um, agape toy, which means my dear friends, or more literally, my beloved 
ones. And this is an even stronger term of endearment than Adelphoi. Uh, and it conveys this kind of deep care and deep love. And all throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see this deep affection, this deep love that he has for them. At the very beginning of the letter in chapter one, he says that he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And at the very end of his letter, at the, at the beginning of chapter four, he uses this term again, agape toy, my beloved ones. And so there is what we see here is this deep, authentic, agape love that Paul has in his heart toward these people. He doesn't just love them, he, he actually likes them. You know the, that feeling? We all, we all know the opposite, don't we? We've all said something to the extent of, you know, I, I love them, I really do, but I, uh, I don't like them right now. You know, I know parents, parents, we've all said that at one point or another about our children, wives. I know that you have said this about your husbands. We need to be honest about this, but this wasn't the case with Paul though, okay? He loved them and he liked them. Uh, Stuck in prison, he longed to be with them. But why? Like, why did Paul like the Philippians so much? Well, we see it here in the very next part of uh, verse 12. He says, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my own and not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. And so essentially what Paul is saying here is he's like, when I was with you, you were brand new to Jesus, you were little babies in the faith, and you started to walk in the way of obedience and life in Jesus. But now that I'm gone, and it's been years, and I'm hundreds of miles away from you, and you're still obeying. I mean, this is every parent's dream with their children, isn't it? Moms and dads, your dream is that for one day, after years of raising your kids to know what is right, is that when they leave your house, you hope and pray that they don't just know what to do, but they actually do it. That when you release your kids, boys when they're 18, girls when they're 42, that's just the rule in my house. That's how we're doing it. Um, We hope and we pray that they stay on that way of life, that they continue to follow the way of Jesus. And so Paul is so full of love for the Philippians, their conduct brings him so much joy because they're actually growing in their faith. They are maturing. And listen to this, immaturity is when you don't know how to handle freedom. Maturity is knowing how to handle freedom. It's, 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 it's like you obey mom and dad when they're around and you also obey when they're gone. That's maturity and the Philippians are demonstrating it. And, and this brings Paul great joy and it's the reason he loves them. And then he goes on and lays out the command, the command to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we can't skip over that first little word right there. It's important, the command, the imperative there. It's in what's called the present progressive tense. And so that means don't stop, keep going. We're not going to arrive. This is ongoing. It's unflagging. It's what Eugene Peterson, I love the way he phrased it. It's what he called a long obedience in the same direction. I love that. It's what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, that they should never tire of doing what's good. And i I I just want to ask how many of you have ever found yourself growing tired and growing weary of doing what is good? I know all of us have at some point or another, that it can be exhausting to continue on day in and day out, to continue to do what is right and honorable and good in the eyes of God. And, and, And the text says here, keep going, continue, continue. 
Don't stop. Work out your salvation. To work out means to go at it with energy and go at it with drive, to to chase it down, to continue to do it. And then he says your salvation. And I think this is where many of us get hung up and freak out a little bit because we wonder, is Paul calling us to earn our salvation? Is he saying that we have to work to earn it? And I think that one of the reasons we freak out about this sentence right here that Paul writes is that for many of us, Salvation is this very one-dimensional, flat, truncated word. Like to many of us, this word is, is simply, merely associated with getting out of hell and getting into heaven when you die. And listen, there is truth to that. But to Paul, this word for salvation was wide. It was elastic. It was a panorama of a word. And it was not just about you and your own personal salvation, but it's about all of creation and what God is accomplishing in, in, in what he calls the cosmos. It's about the past. It's about the present. It's about the future. I mean, throughout Paul's letters, we see him refer to our salvation in the past tense. It's something that has happened to you where you were once an enemy of God and now you are a friend of God because you have been saved. We see Paul refer to salvation in the present tense as well in that you are currently being saved. You are a work in progress and we see him use it in the future tense as well you will be saved. And and this is actually the majority of Paul's usage of this word throughout his letters. And, And Paul is referring to a day in the future where the things that God is doing at work in our lives and in his church and in this world in bits and pieces will come to pass in, in, in full fruition at some point in the future. You know, one way to understand this is, 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 is in terms of a marriage. Um, like, like myself, I, uh, I, I was married, I am married, and I will be married. Over 16 years ago, I was married to my wife, Carrie, on August 12, 2006. That's when we got married. I was married, and at this present moment, I am married by the grace of God. I am married, and in the future, I hope and pray decades down the road, I will be married to Carrie. And now in between now and that future moment, I will spend the rest of my life living up to that already existing reality in my life, working out my my role as a husband. What is already true of me, I, I, I was married, I am married. Every day is an open door for me to live into that reality of being someone who is married to carry. And so working out our salvation is like that. That for those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, listen, we have the opportunity every single day to live deeper and fuller into that already existing reality of our salvation. And then he says in my translation that we are to continue working out our salvation with awe and reverence. But like I mentioned earlier, some other translations um, translate this to, to, to with fear and trembling. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's these words phobos and traumas, where we get um, our words for phobia and, and trauma or traumatic. And what this phrase describes is essentially when a man or woman encounters the presence of the living God. I think of Isaiah 6, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. There we have Isaiah, just ruined, overcome in the presence of God. I think of John in Revelation 1. He gets this vision of Jesus, and and one of the first things he says is, I fell at his feet, although dead. I mean, he is just paralyzed 
with fear. And, and yet, how does Jesus respond to John in that moment? He puts his hand on John's shoulder and says, do not be afraid. But yet here we have in this passage, this call to us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and, and this is just my opinion, but, but I, I think we've lost something of fear and trembling in our current Christian culture. I think many of us have slipped into a flippant and irreverent theology of God, the way we think about God, the way we speak about God, the way we talk about God to other people. Now, did you know that the Old Testament talks about the fear of the Lord or the fear of Yahweh over 100 times and that there are, there are 36 commands in Torah to fear God? Now, we are commanded to fear God, but we might ask, but I thought fear, I thought fear was a bad thing. The thing is, it's, it's not, not always. The problem is that we fear the wrong things. Uh, we fear not having enough money. We fear unemployment. We fear being single forever. We fear sickness, cancer, disease, death. And God's like, no, 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 no. Fear me. Fear me. And you will have nothing else to fear. You know, when I think of fear, I think of my dad growing up and I was well aware of how much my dad loved me and cared for me. And he was a tremendously stable and steady and patient man. Um, but, but I was also well aware that when I disobeyed and I pushed the limit so much that my mom would say something to the extent of, well, just wait until your father finds out. I, I knew uh, that that was a moment to be afraid, uh, that, that that would ruin the day. You know, like uh, there was nothing worse than that as a kid fearing the punishment uh, that I'd receive from my father when he got home. And I just, I say that to share that, um, that love for God and fear of God are not mutually exclusive. You can enjoy the love of your father and at the same time be terrified of what happens when you obey. You know, I think about the first few weeks that my family moved out here to the, uh, to the, to the Pacific Northwest. And we went on this this amazing hike. It was gorgeous up to Lake 22. And um, we're, we're on this hike and there are these, you know, incredible trails and you get to some spots on these trails uh, where you're just looking out on the edge and you're looking over and it's beautiful, but you make a couple wrong steps and, and you're, you're falling over the edge and you're either getting severely injured, if not dying. But, but again, there's, there's nowhere you'd rather be because of how beautiful it is, but a few wrong steps and it could change everything. And that's just creation. I mean, can you imagine standing in front of your creator. The thing is that one day um, all of us will. You know, there's this spot in Corinthians when Paul says to them that we'll all stand before God, we'll answer for our deeds, we'll answer for our words, whether good or evil. And this is a, this is a verse that we don't like talking about. Um, and, and some of us might be like, but me, I, I'm saved. I thought I was covered by the blood of Jesus. And listen, we are, but, but we will all stand in the presence of the living God. We will give an account of how we stewarded our lives. And so in the meantime, um, would we take seriously this call to work out our salvation in fear and trembling? Again, it says work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. You are saved. Paul acknowledges this about the Philippian believers. At the very beginning, he says to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. In other words, to people who have experienced salvation. Again, not saying that you are earning this in any uh, sense of the word. But on the other hand, he says work out your salvation. The text says work and, and work. Do you know what that means in the Greek? 
It means work. It means labor. It means sweat. It means go at it with energy and flesh out what being saved is actually like. What being an actual disciple of Jesus really means in the life that God has given you to live. And so let's keep reading. Look at verse 13 now. Paul then writes this, For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. The Greek word here for bringing forth, or maybe in some of your translations working in, is this word energon, where we get our word energy from. And and so Paul believes, believes that, that, that at our core, there is this divine creative energy at work within us, that the one who began a good work in us is surely going to bring it to completion. It's the exact same creative energy of God that, that spoke the universe into existence. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That power is at work deep inside your being. And so listen, would we be encouraged by the reality that God promises to supply our every need as we journey on as disciples of Jesus Christ. He calls each and every one of us who profess to follow Jesus to work out our salvation. But listen, he doesn't leave us hanging there. As we work out our salvation, we can have full assurance that God is also at work within us, providing us not only with the divine energy to work, but he is also bringing forth in you the desire God's bringing both to you, the energy and the desire. The theological term for this kind of transformation in our hearts is called regeneration. It's called regeneration. And here's what that means. It means that when you were saved, you were filled with the spirit of God and you were regenerated. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, God removed your old heart of stone and he put inside of your heart a heart of flesh. As as a child of God adopted into his family, into the people of God, he gives you a new heart. And with that new heart, your deepest desire is to obey him. Now get this though, that is not your strongest desire, okay? Your strongest desire is not always to obey, but that is your deepest desire. And the energy to do good on that deepest desire, it is made available by the spirit of God. But again, these two desires, our strongest desire on the one hand, those desires embedded in our old self, what the Bible calls the old man embedded in our flesh, and our deepest desires to obey God and to love him and to love others and do good work and work out our salvation and live as his disciples, they are very much at conflict within ourselves. And and what we see here in verse 14 now is Paul gives us a very practical example of where we might encounter this kind of conflict here in verse 14. He writes this, do everything, now listen, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Easy, right? Um, Just a quick note, these four verses that we're about to jump into, what's really interesting is Paul quotes three passages from the Old Testament in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Daniel. And then he makes upwards of like 10 different allusions to other Old Testament scriptures. But we're just going to touch on the three main ones uh, because I think it's really cool that what Paul is doing here, uh, here is he is drawing us into the story of God through these references. And so first of all, he starts here in verse 14 by giving us a command, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And knowing that Paul is referencing or quoting a passage from Exodus here, um, who comes to mind when you hear those words grumbling and arguing or grumbling and complaining. The Israelites, right? In the wilderness. And so that's who Paul's referring to here in Exodus 16. Um, And and this is what he writes. Exodus 
chapter 16, verse 1, he says, When they journeyed from Elim, the entire company of Israelites came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their exodus from the land of Egypt. The entire company of Israelites murmured or grumbled or complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And what we see throughout the rest of chapter 16 is the Israelites are complaining and they're murmuring and they're grumbling. And they do that in 17 and they start arguing with one another. But in all of that, God responds with mercy and kindness and he provides for them food every single day. He provides water from a rock. But here we have the people of of Israel, the people of God, the seed of Abraham, redeemed out of slavery to Egypt. I mean, they were led through the waters of the sea and they're called to be a blessing to all the nations, but they are not marked by the spirit of God and gratitude and joy and peace and hope and love, but they're marked instead by grumbling and complaining. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Do you know what the Greek word for everything means? It means everything. You know, one scholar defines grumbling as whispering in complaints, talking in secret, talking about others behind their backs. Another says that grumbling is complaint or displeasure expressed in murmuring, secret talk, or whisperings about someone, a kind of grumbling action that promotes ill will instead of harmony and good will. Grumbling is when you talk about your boss behind his or her back. It's when you roll your eyes at your parents or your spouse when they ask you to help with something around the house. It's when we're at each other's throats. It's when we press send on that mean-spirited or critical email or text message. It's when we're marked by negativity and rifts in our relationship. And, And listen, I know some of the questions that are probably coming up in your mind right now, and I know that hearing that, there are these defense mechanisms that start to trigger and you're like, well, you don't know my boss. He's awful. He's a tyrant. He's so inconsiderate. You don't know what it's like to live in the house that I live in with my parents or my spouse. You don't know my workplace and like the oppressive nature of all the policies that I have to put up with. You get to work at a church and listen, you know what? You're right. I don't know all the details of what you're facing in your life, but, but here's what I know and here's what I find interesting. I know that, that as the people of God adopted, grafted into the family of Abraham, you and I, we are called to be a blessing to those around us. That's what we're called to do with hearts marked with gratitude and hope and love and joy. In Colossians, in fact, Paul says that our speech as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should be seasoned with salt. And right here, he explicitly calls us very simply to do everything without grumbling and complaining. That's what I know. But here's what I find interesting. What I find interesting is that when our hearts are confronted with the plain truth of God's word, very simply stated, do everything without grumbling and complaining, what does it say that for so many of us, myself included, our knee-jerk reaction is to go to a few situations in our lives where there might be an exception? 
What does it say that we instantly go to the one area in our life where it might be disputable dis- disputable, instead of just being like, you know what, this is what God's calling me to. And, and through the strength of his spirit, I'm going to try to lean into this and be obedient to this area in my life. You know, if someone's asking you to do something sinful, then of course resist. This doesn't mean that we don't speak into broken situations in our relationships and in our workplaces and in our homes and in our friendships. But listen, when our reputations have already been marred by like this low-grade grumbling and complaining in the little things in our lives that aren't even sinful, that aren't even wrong. They just might be inconvenient or or difficult for us in our lives. What kind of credibility do we have when we're really called to speak into something that is important? Like, do you know what the opposite of grumbling and complaining is? It's gratitude. And so Paul isn't calling us to be fake here. He's just saying, be grateful. This is, this is one of the core perspectives of joy. It's, it's gratitude. It's gratefulness. To, to, to live our lives as the people of God, um, as, as, as full of gratitude to the living God. And so no matter where we're at in life, uh, in the good, the bad, the ugly, the painful, the easy, the hard, we're called to do everything. Do everything with zero grumbling, no arguing. Would you be filled with gratitude to the depths of your being? And why though? Well, Paul gives us the reason why in verse 15. He writes this, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world. So I said that Paul quoted three Old Testament passages in these verses. We've looked at one already. Quickly, we see the other two right here. One of them is in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32 to be exact. And so at this point in God's word, um, the story of scripture, the years have passed now since the Exodus account. And long story short, Israel continued to wander in the desert. She kept grumbling and complaining and God was finally like enough. And so he shut the door to the promised land to an entire generation. And in in Deuteronomy 32, this is actually a song, a song of Moses. And he says this about the people in Deuteronomy 32, verse five. He says, his people have been unfaithful to him. They have not acted like his children. This is their sin. They've grumbled, they've complained, they've argued. They are a perverse and deceitful generation. Now, what's so genius about what Paul does here is he actually flips it. He says that as children of God, you and I, redeemed and regenerated by King Jesus, we are now called to follow the way of Jesus, the one who did what Israel couldn't do, and we are, con- we are to continue on in Jesus' example uh, as individuals who don't grumble and argue, and instead, because we don't grumble and argue, we remain pure and blameless amidst a crooked and perverse society. And so as this new people of God, we have new hearts that empower us to do this. By his grace, we no longer grumble and complain and we are no longer this crooked and deceitful generation. But listen, this is not so that we would remove ourselves from the world and have this self-righteous condemning stance toward the world that is broken and, and crooked and out of rhythm. No, no, no. Paul, Paul says our new position is that we would shine as lights in the world. That's what we're called to do. We're called to shine as lights in the world. And this, this, is, an actual, this is actually a reference to Daniel. Um, 
Daniel, uh, written at the end of Israel's history, uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, written at the beginning, Daniel at the end, Israel is in exile again, back where she started in slavery, but this time in Babylon, not Egypt. And Daniel and the prophets, they started dreaming of, of what they called Yom Yahweh, or, or the day of the Lord, a day in which God would come back in person, and he would make all wrongs right, and there would be no more suffering, and no more evil, and no more pain. And then, and then finally, toward the end of Daniel, in chapter 12, he prophesied about this time when the people of God will be delivered, and that while Israel may have failed, God was not done with his creation, and he refuses to turn his back on it. And, and they prophesy about this time where he will return and there will be resurrection, and the people of God will shine like the stars in the night sky. He says in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 12, but the wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse, and those bringing many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. What we need to understand here is that Jesus didn't just simply come to uh, found a church. He came to finish a story. Jesus came to finish uh, the story of the people of God. Jesus came as Israel in person, as the Messiah, in order to do what they were supposed to do, what we were supposed to do, but, but, but couldn't. And because of our failure, Jesus succeeded where Israel f- failed. He, he succeeds where we fail. And because of his victory, by faith, we can become his followers. And this means that we are now part of this story. We are part of the people of God. We are part of a brand new Israel made up of Jews, made up of Gentiles, and we are now called to partner with our God and put this world at rights. And and we get this second chance to succeed where Israel as a nation failed to not land in the wilderness and miss the plot of the story. But, but would we shine like the stars of the heaven as Paul writes in verse 16 now also by holding on to the word of life so that on the day of Christ, I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. And so as we begin to wrap up, I mean, this is just our reminder as to how we work out our salvation. It's how we shine like stars, not not simply by just not grumbling or complaining, but that is a very simple, easy way to live this out. But we're also called to hold on to the word of life. And, and to Paul, the word of life, it was, it was the gospel. It was the good news of the kingdom. It's the message about Jesus. It's the message that this world that we live in is a good world. It is created by God, but it is currently broken. And it's out of rhythm because of sin and evil. And it's distorted. But God in Jesus, he chases after this world because we as his image bearers failed to do what we were called to do. And from the beginning, Jesus lived and showed us this way through his life and his teachings through his miracles, and he established the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, and it is spreading all over the earth wherever hearts bow down to his rule and his reign. And all of this story built up to his death where he reestablished his justice in this world and made us right with God. And then three days later, he came out of that tomb, defeated death and evil and darkness. And one day we believe that Jesus will return as king and there's going to be no more brokenness, no more evil, no more disease, no more death no more tears, and that Jesus will be king and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That is the word of life. And that is what we are called to hold on to. That is what we cling to. And when we believe in Jesus and we live into this reality, into this story, it brings life and it brings joy. 
and and as we cling to it we we are willing to regardless of the sacrifice um, whatever it costs it's it's worth it as we cling to this message i mean this is what paul does this is what he lives out in verses 17 and 18 he says but even if i am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith i am glad and rejoice together with all of you and in the same way, you, should, you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. Like Paul, we are called to give our lives away for the gospel. And this is such a difficult thing to live out. In fact, I'm not sure there's anything more difficult to do. Nothing might be harder than living this out. There, there will certainly be sacrifice involved. And, and sometimes it might cost a lot more than we thought. We might have to give up our time, our money, our stuff, our privacy. Um, we'll have to give up our fears so much. But, but listen, if you are willing, if you are willing to give your life away, do you know what we'll find on the other side? Joy. Pure joy. Paul said, be glad and rejoice together with me? And do we have to be reminded of where Paul is again? He's in prison and he could have given up and he could have said, I'm not going to work this out any longer. I'm done. I'm throwing in the towel. He could have argued. He could have complained, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And why? Because for Paul, remember, good is anything that advances the gospel. And Paul gave up everything. He gave up his life gave up his freedom. He gave up his career. I mean, this is what we're going to see in Philippians chapter three. He gave up everything for the sake of the gospel. And so I just, I want to finish with this, with this simple question. If Paul were to write you a letter, what would he say to you? If Paul were to write you a letter, what would he say to you? Would he, like he did with the Philippians, be celebrating your obedience and your maturity like, would his heart just be like overflowing with joy because you continue to obey? Or would he be discouraged? Would he be discouraged to see that you've, you've neglected to continue to work out your salvation? Your heart has grown full of grumbling, complaining, arguing. Your light has grown dim. Listen, Arbor, uh, I, I don't want us to die in the desert. I want us to rejoice with Paul. I want us to rejoice with one another. I want us to shine like the stars in the heaven. I want us to experience this deep, resilient joy that God has on offer for us. But listen, it, it might cost us some things. But if the alternative is gaining the world and then losing our souls, well, what choice do we really have? Would we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Would we do everything without grumbling or complaining? And we would, would we hold fast to the word of life so that we would shine like stars in the heavens and would many come to see and know and hear about the beauty of Jesus and the gospel of his kingdom and would we see lives transformed as a result.